Welcome to Friars and Film. We are three Catholic priests from the Order of Preachers, and we're here, as always, to talk about the movies. Well, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Father Luke, Father Timothy, and Father Alan are with me. We are talking today about probably one of my very top personal favorites, The Third Man. This is uh, in po- set in post-war Vienna. It's made in 1949. It's a British film. I think this is our first British film that we've, that we've discussed. It's directed by Carol Reed. It is another name to throw in here is um, Graham Greene. The screenplay was written by Graham Greene, which in my humble opinion means that it's going to be a top-notch screenplay we, we have joseph Kotzen and orson wells coming back we, we were talking about the two of them in our citizen kane podcast uh, so yeah they're back for this one and then this other mysterious dark-haired lady her name is alita volley in my opinion she steals the show in this in this movie i guess i'll just start off by saying that maybe <laughs> Maybe my favorite, favorite thing about this movie is the atmosphere. The atmosphere is just, to me, just just, uh, mesmerizing. Um, You have, it's sort of set in this classic noir lighting style with lots of light and dark. It's in, of course, black and white. Most of the the shots are, are at nighttime. Not all of them, but 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 most of them, and so you have lots of shadows, lots of lots of spotlights casting very dramatic shadows of people on on uh, on, on walls and whatnot. You have um, it's 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 so clearly post-war, you know, in the sense that you have just rubble everywhere, and yet there's this mixture of sort of past grandeur with so many beautiful statues, beautiful towns, uh, city squares, beautiful old buildings and structures and churches and yet again it's it, it's all been so much of it is in, is in rubble and so you have this strange sad mixture of um, kind of past glory past dignity of human culture of human people um, mixed with this now new rubble the rubble of the aftermath of world war ii and indeed you have this this sort of cynicism kind of pervading the whole atmosphere and so, therefore, to me, what, what the whole movie raises is the question of this. Okay, in this strange environment of post-war Vienna, where um, you have this strange mixture of past grandeur and current cynicism and weariness and depression and bureaucracy and people speaking different languages that, and, and you, most people can't understand each other, how do you live an authentic life? How do you live an authentic life? And we're given multiple different um, examples of how people choose to carve out an authentic life in in this this environment, and um, and yeah, maybe that's something that we can talk about uh, later on. But um, Father Timothy, Father Allen, what do you think? I want to know who's the third man of us. You know, there are three of us. <laughs> what's our What's our ranking? Wow. Well, you, well, you've got to be the uh, naive American. I'm, okay, I'll be the naive um. American. 
No, uh, no, no. Yeah, the three, I, the three I, I men are all the murderers. Come on. You watch the film, right? Well, I don't, yeah, that okay. was not a real philosophical question. I'm just throwing you off. And I'm not even going to try to answer that question. I'm just going to return the baton to Father Allen. I think that's a good way to set it up, Father Luke, which you did at the beginning. And I think the naive American, Holly, walks into this disorienting setting. And his disillusionment isn't even uh, complete at the end of the film because there's one last confusing thing for him to endure, Anna just walking by him. Isn't that great? (laughs) Such a great scene. Yeah, so for... And the, the title is, is really interesting. It's worth pondering. And apparently there's Christological meanings to it and everything. But I was thinking of, of Holly as a third wheel on Anna and, uh, and Harry's relationship. You know, he's, he thinks he knows Harry. And then he thinks that maybe he has a shot with Anna. Mm-hmm. But she and Harry have something, apparently, that he's just not going to be a part of. And so, yeah, in a certain way, he's the third man, but I think in a in a secondary way. No, but I mean, he's also, of course, you know, the, the third man in the sense that, you know, there was the question of, OK, who was this third person who was complicit in the murder of, of Harry? And then, you know, he's searching for who this third man was. And then, of course, it ends up being himself. You know, he's the one who was the ultimate one who was complicit in the murder of, of Harry um, yeah. at the end. Um, but yeah, no, there's lots of meanings. I actually, and, and I would love to come back to what some, this, uh, when you mentioned there's a Christological meaning to that, it hadn't occurred to me. Well, we, we don't have to wait. Father Allen always <laughs> yeah, has, yeah, an tell eye, me. He has an eye for Christ. Let's, let's hear it. Yeah, well, apparently it's a reference to Christ on the way to Emmaus. So there are two disciples, and then there's this mysterious oh. companion on the way to Emmaus. And it's by way of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. So he talks about the third man that accompanies two others. And it's, a, it's apparently also an allusion to a psychological phenomenon when, when two people are in, under great distress and perhaps they're climbing a mountain or something. Sometimes they feel like there's a third presence that's helping them get through the hardship. And that's sort of like what Jesus was doing on the way to Emmaus, too. He was helping these disciples get through their abandonment and their disorientation. So, yeah, Harry is the third man. I'm not sure mechanically, logistically, how how this actually worked, but I was thinking of Harry as the third figure who maybe, who was there when when his death was faked and who was moving a corpse. So I'm not really sure how his, his staged death worked. But I think Harry is the third man. And so he's compared, ironically, to Jesus, because he's also compared to Satan in various ways. For example, when he and Harry are taken up on the the Ferris wheel, he shows Holly the kingdom of the world and how how it's within his power, you know, just in the same way that Satan takes Jesus up on a high place to see the kingdoms of the world. In that way, he's kind of like an antichrist figure, right? Yeah. Instead of a Christ figure, I didn't know the connection to T.S. Eliot, though. So that phrase had kind of gotten picked up from him. I also wanted to add a question of kind of of Orson Welles, because clearly this character is sort of an anti-Christ figure. But I wonder, so so too with Orson Welles in Citizen Kane. I mean, not so much anti-Christ, but he's sort of the the man who worships Mammon. 
and status, and he he gets out of touch with himself. But I kind of wonder, does Orson Welles, does he ever play good guys? Is he ever sympathetic? I feel like every movie I see him in, he's this great actor, and yet I don't like him as a character. <laughs> you know, I don't know him well enough to know. Um, I guess I haven't seen enough of his of his stuff. But yeah, so I, I, I'm not aware of there being one where he plays an actual good guy. And there's a great yeah. reveal this time, you know, when he's, he's standing there this, in the alley and the Isn't light. Isn't that great? The light shines across his face. Oh, my gosh. And just, just his, his, his face when, he, when you first meet him, it's just, it's roughly, it's basically a still face. And yet it seems just alive with right. humor and emotion and gaiety. And it's just amazing. I think for me, some... I, I had read up on the film, for instance, you know, how to show a world in chaos, you know, like the cinematographer, he he filmed most angles or most camera shots at an angle, not straight. Mm -hmm. There are things like that that I don't pick up on because I'm not trained, I guess. Um, but But then there are some things that are so obvious, like when that light shines across his face, I think every viewer is going to kind of react to that, which I kind of... And of yeah. course, the build-up to that is so much too. And then you have, you know, you just see the shoes, and you see the cat, and and so yeah, no, that that is so well done. Now, just talking about other elements, the theme song obviously is famous for this. And I read that that basically the director Reed was was in Vienna and heard this musician Anton Karas playing this instrument called a zither, basically in this in this beer house, and he was like, "What is that?" And he made that into the the instrument for the what father luke you majored in some sort of music at university of michigan what is a zither without looking it up on it's a chitara it's like the chitara in the psalms right you know what so uh this is extremely humiliating for me but i i just i don't i would not be able to define a zither aside it's it's strained right is it like a it's definitely a stringed it's like a lap guitar it looks like a harp sometimes has frets sometimes doesn't and it's definitely not something we're used to, um, at least in our in our culture here. So it it's, could have been from Vienna interacting with Ottoman Empire, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it seems Eastern, but I think it is, there is a Viennese uh, zither. That is kind of what a lot of this movies come to be known for as well, is the theme song. Well, and that is a huge part of it. Um, and, and again, kind of like the way that the atmosphere, the visual atmosphere, gives this whole new dynamic to the whole the way that the whole plot unfolds and everything that's said and spoken so too the 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 music is almost not not entirely but almost continuous and that particular zither the sound of the zither itself plus the particular score that it's playing the music it's the 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 soundtrack that it's playing the tune um it gives the whole film just this strange background of um like nostalgia or romance, um, but also irony because it's sort of humorous. Um, and so there's there's these very like severe, dark, brooding themes going on in the movie. And yet having that backdrop of, of the lighthearted zither, it, it just, it gives you this, this strange clash of emotion, um, which I think is a huge other aspect of, of the film's greatness, yeah. I think it sounds arch. I think it sounds ironic in a mischievous, cynical way. I think almost now maybe the music itself predates the war. And so, you know, I don't know how it gets this arch character to it, but I would almost say that it it expresses Lime's spirit, Mm. the spirit of Lime, where 
hmm. where you have this playful person, but but really there's an evil there, hmm. and, and it's not it's not real joy. It's just kind of devil may care, nothing really matters kind of mischief. So it has this comical sound, easygoing, but it's 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 dark because you know there's nothing really to hope for in that setting. Now, because we're on the subject of the director and his choice in scene, music, etc., do either of you know more, for instance, when we had done Casablanca, it was kind of an unknown director, because Casablanca, as we had discussed kind of off-script, was a studio film, right? I mean, it was contemporary with the war, but it was just one of many studio films that were being churned out, and it just happened to be great. It just happened yeah. to be like... Um, Whereas this, do we know if... The, I, I know that you know America used to be on a studio basis. I don't know about Britain, who produced this film. I know that India, for instance, India is still all Bollywood on studio. So they constantly churn out movies, same actors. What do we know about... Was this? Did this stand out purposefully? Well, I, I think some of these people might have been stable actors in some sense. But one of the main differences is that this is filmed in Vienna. Whereas Casablanca was filmed in a studio. Right. Mm -hmm. Which on a personal note, I'm, I'm not trying to be funny, is that I kind of had some nostalgia because every young American dreams, like like the, uh, the characters in this film, they dream of visiting Europe and making the trip. My very first visit to Europe was to Vienna, which is kind of neat. So I recognize vividly like St. Stephen's Cathedral or a few other neighborhoods mm -hmm. I've been there a couple times. If you if you don't count the Dublin airport, would you guys count that as a first visit? Or I wouldn't. I don't think so. No, no. Well, still, it does give you an impression. <laughs> but there is something about uh, what I want to get at too is how movies connect with us or don't connect with us. So viewer experience, and I know that's not the deepest thought here. I think for me, I appreciated this movie. It was it was certainly had, as you say, Father Luke, an atmosphere by music, lighting, etc. I think it was very plot-driven. It just seems because it's film noir, because it's kind of mystery, whodunit, it's going to be somewhat plot-driven. I can appreciate that, but I actually need to... It actually takes effort for me to watch. So this was, this was almost like a workout in that you kind of have to push yourself to watch it, and I did appreciate it, but I did a couple times in the middle of the film um, like check my watch. Not because it was bad, mm -hmm. just because I think I, as a viewer... I'm in tune quickly with drama or comedy, and there are certain whole genres like film noir, sci-fi, etc., that I can appreciate, but I kind of have to push myself. The opposite is, I mean, I was watching this with our older priest, Father Giles, and he was locked in the whole time. He was saying, "Ooh, ah, huh," you know. <laughs> and I was there again. I'm watching this because you guys made me. Uh, no. I mean, for, I appreciate for, in the end, but it, it is funny how like certain elements line up and some people get engrossed in those and other people mm -hmm. can recognize them and say, yeah, I, I saw that, you know, but for me, it was, it was, it was more of an effort and I'm not complaining. It's just sure. a part of the reflection. Yeah. For, for me, it, it, uh, yeah, the, there, for me, there was really only one slow spot and that was actually the very, very, very end with the extended chase scene with uh, Lime and the police officers to me that really drags a little bit right there. Which, uh, but but the reason why it drags is because you, it's just sort of action, um, and that's also why, in my experience, none of the rest of it drags uh, because all the rest of it is just these characters, these these these, these faces, these these uh, these conversations, 
and um, yeah, really, anytime that 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 the the woman who plays Anna, we know when she her character is there, or Cotton's character Holly, um, and of course Lime, uh, they just they just to me just sort of grab the viewer. Um, but if if I may, I mean, just while we're talking about the the characters and the actors, like I mentioned at the very beginning, I mean, so the, there's the question of you know how does one choose to live an authentic and good life in a trying scene where your the culture around you has just been destroyed and t- torn apart you have multiple different um uh, nat- nat- nations armies who are present there um and so there's uh, sort of a lack of a coherent culture um and i think that the main four characters so we have uh lime uh holly and then anna and I think also the major, he would also be one of the one of the huge characters in the in the movie. Um, and so we have these sort of four figures, and to me, they all they all kind of have have their own take on how it is that they choose to live an authentic um, life. And um, of course, with Lime, I guess you'd say you know he just he just simply chooses to make his own ambition his his whole focus. And it's clear that that's that that that, that is a, a pretty poor decision on his part. Uh, but but yeah, that's the course that he takes. And then you have the major. You know what does he take? He's just like okay, we have you, in order in order to live a coherent life, you got to just live uh, a life of trust in the state in the system. And he's just following the course of action directed by his bureaucracy. Same thing could be said for the sergeant who works under him. And then you have Holly, and he you know, and what does he say? He says, well, okay, um, I'm not sure if I'm going to trust the system, um, but I'm just going to trust myself and my own sense of of, of morality. Um, how does that work out for him? Well, he ends up killing his friend, or the man who had been his friend, and then he ends up totally alone, you know, standing there outside the car. And then finally, there there's Anna, you know, and and what what is her response or her answer to that question? I think her her answer is just that okay, when everything else falls apart around you, all you have are relationships. It's just. Who are the people that you love? Who are the people that you connect with? And um, therefore, even no matter what she learns about Lyme, just her experience with him and the way in which he he, he captured her heart in some way, she, she's going to give that everything. Um, I don't think the movie says that one of those is is better than the others, but it, it's it is just I, I think I think wondrous to see the, the different ways in which those three those four different responses kind of play out. I think we we should identify with um, Holly a little bit because I th- I think what what Green is doing is he's trying to mature our spirituality. Let's say so, you know this is why he muddies the waters between Christ and Satan. I think he's trying to say sometimes satanic figures can appear Christological, and so in the end, Harry is a pseudo Christ. He um, gets crucified on the stairs trying to trying to leave the sewer you know so he never really completes the resurrection he he sort of gets mm-hmm. stuck on a unholy saturday in the underworld mm-hmm. of the sewer even though he appears to have escaped death before so he's this he's a resurrected figure but it's not a real resurrection in, in a christological sense and i think there's this movement there's this critique of art as amusement maybe movie picture understandings of the world. So, for example, there's the treatment of Anna in her dressing room 
you know, so you get to see behind the curtain, as it were. She's a stage actress, and you get to see, you know, the difference between appearance and reality there. But then you also get to see the difference between the kind of pulp fiction that Holly is, is an author of and a producer, and, you know, how the real world works. So basically this mass-produced amusement entertainment stuff is sort of keeping people in a naive situation. And I think that after the war, you know, with a little more complexification of our, of our categories of good and evil, I think Green is trying to get people to mature a little bit. There's even a scene where Holly and Anna are, are trying to escape the mob, I believe, who mm-hmm. suspect him of murdering the porter, and they duck into a movie theater, right? And I thought that was interesting because in that scene, you actually get to see people watching a movie. And it doesn't say what movie it is. It's probably some standard film. And so what is that saying? It's, it's sort of saying, look, there's a lot of scary stuff and a lot of real things going on in the world. And people who are in movie theaters can often be indulging in a, in a kind of escapism that removes them from having to deal with reality. So I, I do think that there's, there's this kind of subtle critique of like your standard movie culture or your standard Pulp Fiction culture um, that, that this movie is leveling, you know, even as a movie itself. I think those are, those are great insights. I just add to them that I think there's a critique, too, of business because Orson Welles, who is somewhat of a, of a Satan Antichrist figure, he's not just, he doesn't just arrive that way. It has to do with making money. It has to do with treating people as objects. There's also something there about, and, you know, take an opposite, for instance, which we, we might end up watching later, is Schindler's List, which is same kind of wartime film, businessman, playing the game to make profit off of a war. And this is the story of every war. There's always business and profits. There's also always social movements tied together with war in, in both senses. In, in all wars. But, but there's, there's something there, too, about um, criticizing business with no ethics, you know. I mean, just, just I mean, because it's, it's hard to imagine, you know, that he's watering down, what is it, penicillin, and there are all these lives of children in the hospital. That's what turns, what's his name, uh, Joseph Cotton finally against him. Holly turns mm-hmm. against him because he visits the hospital mm-hmm. and sees the children. Um, but business, again, it, it doesn't mean it's, these people are born pure evil, but it's, but it's profits. It's a distance. It's, it's always keeping a distance from the real lives of people, and it's playing off the situations. I just see that in tandem with what you were saying, Father Allen. Yeah, I think that's an especially satanic feature of Harry, that he hurts children. children. And the fact that he controls people's lives. Like Satan does say that to Christ in the temptation. He shows him all the cities of the world and says, I will give these over to your, your control if you bow yeah. down. There's some sense of evil wishing to have control. And, and about keeping the fact that he's able to do that by keeping distance from people, I think that, that, that that's absolutely right. And that's, of course, what's at the heart of that scene on the Ferris wheel, right? Mm-hmm. You know, where they're far removed from the people. And, um, and it's because of that that they, they can look like mere little dots. And again, I would also argue that perhaps the director is, is saying um, with these different characters is that the major um, also runs the risk of of keeping at a distance from people. And so in a, in some way, do, perhaps does uh, Holly through their 
prioritizing of, of a abstract sense of, of right and wrong versus um, Anna, who, you know, remains rooted in her very direct knowledge of people. Now, the fun, and, and that's what she bases her decisions on. Now, the funny thing is, is that, again, and why it's, it's so not, not simplified, is that um, it's hard to say that Anna is even correct in her decisions, you know, because um, you could say, oh, wow, she's willing to pri prioritize her experience of the human heart, you know, over um, a system of rules. But it's like, yeah, but and uh, and is does is, is it really make sense to, to maintain loyalty to someone who's clearly doesn't even care about her? Right. <laughs> the, uh, the love that she has from him is not at all uh, returned. So, yeah, although really he no, does, no he does try to sneak her back. He is he is working to get her back right through the Russian consulate. Because remember, okay. he he's he's he has her passport, her papers confiscated, shown to be forfeit. So the Russians lure basically to get her back into his arms, which is still selfish. I don't think, mm -hmm. but that that's kind of prevented. Mm -hmm. I'd also say this too. I don't want to treat characters simply as just characters. I mean, there's a vague connection here, but I remember traveling through airports. Now, obviously, it's it's been a while. But there, there are certain situations where we just walk. You could spend a whole day walking past people as if and just giving no attention. It's almost just like crowds, numbers of people. There is a side of us or experiences of ours where you can relate some where you're just like filing past people. I mean, there's, there's very little love of neighbor at an airport, for me at least. Mm -hmm. I mean, but it's just kind of it, – it's an easy mindset to sort of step into – and I just think this shows the nth degree of where you can take it. Mm -hmm. It's never just, you know, people have these wicked inclinations from the get-go. It's sort of taking a regular human numbness. And uh, especially in wartime, I think when all bets are off in wartime, there's also this sense not only that buildings are destroyed, but so are kind of human morals and laws. Because you do get the sense that Harry really was Holly's friend. Like, he, he travels overseas to see right, him right. because they were real friends. And now you see how when they're riding the Ferris wheel, that's over. <laughs> but it's over because of something changed in him. You know, he, mm -hmm. it wasn't that he was this wicked man from his youngest years. Sure. It kind of shows how circumstances and these things can can really shape human freedom and really mm -hmm. shape character in a way that's that's kind of terrifying, not just like the result but the fact that war is somewhat to blame for him as well. Hmm. Hmm. I, I think that's a great point. We will need to begin wrapping it up because I have to go to my community midday meal right here. There you uh, go. So, uh, but before we do, uh, any last thoughts? Father Allen, you got any last thoughts? I think I've said my piece. I would just say it's, it's almost Christmas, so our next film... <laughs> which I'm pushing, is The Miracle on 34th Street. The original, not the color remake. I have never seen the original, neither has Father Alan. Father Luke will treat it philosophically as always. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to rewatching that. Well, I'm going to close with uh, just one of the f most famous lines of the film, which uh, is what Harry says to Holly as they part after that Ferris wheel scene. He says... Hey, in Italy, for 30 years, under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. 
pretty uh, dark and troubling line of to, uh, which we could say a lot more about, but we are just going to have to leave it on that dark and confused satanic note. note. Thank you to the third man for that. But not so dark a theme song. We're going to go out to the theme song of the third man, played by not just a band, but the band. A little bit of a cover as we get closer to Christmas and to Christ himself and not all these bad things.